This is episode 85 with running coach, speaker, and the host of the I'll Have Another podcast, Ms. Lindsay Hine. Here we are again, everyone. Thanks for being here. I can't believe we're on episode 85 already. We are fast approaching episode 100. I'm going to be planning something special for that one, so if you haven't yet, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of our episodes. I also would like to give She's the Run a public thank you for her review on Apple Music of the Strength Running Podcast. She left a review saying that the podcast is the best for content, and then after listening to a few episodes, she got so interested that she went back and listened to all of them from the beginning. Wow. Thank you so much. This is an enormous compliment, and I hope you're getting something valuable from each show. And I thought this was important, and I wanted to mention this. I do want to mention something about the type of running podcast that I'm trying to build here at Strength Running. My goal is for most episodes to be valuable to you, not just the day that they're published, but a week later, a month later, even five years later. In other words, my goal is to always produce evergreen content rather than something topical or about something recent that just happened. So if you haven't looked through all of our past episodes, they're still current because I try not to date the vast majority of these conversations. So they'll be helpful for you no matter when you listen to them. Okay, let's move on to the topic at hand today. We're talking about podcasting elite runners and how to relate to them as a non-elite runner, the big principles to learn from the professionals, and mindsets to have about running when you're a parent. It's a wide-ranging conversation about so many different facets of running because I'm speaking to a polymath today, Lindsay Hine. If you like running podcasts, you probably know Lindsay. She's the host of the enormously popular I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine podcast, where she talks about running to runners for runners. She's talked to a lot more runners than I have. I think she's recorded almost 100 more episodes than the Strength Running podcast. So we're going to be seeing what we can learn from all these great examples. Lindsay is currently training for the Boston Marathon, which is harder than it sounds considering Lindsay is home part-time with her four boys. So we're going to talk a lot about time management and evolving goals, which is perfect for me as I'm in the throes of parenting three kids, five and under. So I have my hands full (laughs) and uh, Lindsay is really helpful as a voice of reason when it comes to training under all these demands. I also want to thank today's sponsor, Hemp Daddy's Therapeutics. They offer athletes CBD oil, a pain-relieving supplement that also has anti-anxiety properties. I've been experimenting with CBD oil for about two weeks now, and I have to say I'm a convert. It's, It's relaxing, it helps me sleep more soundly at night, and I do feel recovered the next day after a harder workout. And the best part? Hemp Daddy's was started by a Colorado ultra marathoner. So you can go over to hempdaddies.com to see all their products and how you can jumpstart your recovery. All right, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Hine. Lindsay, I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for having me, Jason. Well, I think there's something special with having another podcaster on your podcast. So I I feel a certain kinship, uh, a certain (laughs) understanding. So thank you. I'm really excited about this. It's really fun to be on the other end. And I know like you, you had a mic thing going on right when we started. And I was like, look, anything that happens, I understand. <laughs> yeah, you get it. You understand all the all the tech problems. <laughs> These things. happen. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Just I have so many stories for sure. 
Speaking of you being a podcaster, uh, your show, I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine, is blowing up, or rather has been blowing up for for quite a while now. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that. Why did you want to start a running podcast uh, in, the, in the first place? Gosh, I've been running for a really long time. So I kind of fell in love with running when I was probably 15, I'd say, when I started running in high school. And um, I also have always been pretty extroverted. I like to talk to people. And uh, right around the time podcasts started getting big, I just really couldn't find a show that was meeting my needs. And I would be out on runs all the time and I would be like, I, maybe I could do this. You know, you dream big on runs and then I would get back and I'd be like, no, that's that's too much work. Like, I, you know, who are you to think you could do this? And um, I just finally decided I wouldn't, you know, when you can't stop thinking about something, that's when you know you should probably do something about it. Yes. And yeah, it's like, okay, why is this not going away? It's like that dress you want to buy or, you know, shirt you want to buy. And it's like, well, if you go home and you don't think about it anymore, then it's probably not meant to be. But if you keep thinking about it, you can go back and buy the shirt. Um, and I just, um, I wrote a blog post one day and I said, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. Would anybody listen? And I didn't have a very big blog, but people that were engaged and were following seemed like they were excited about it. And even if there were only five people that seemed excited about this idea and I felt like they were going to listen and enjoy it, it may, it encouraged me to want to go do it. So I kind of just was filling my own need, hoping that other people had that same desire to listen to that kind of show in their lives. Well, you learned two things. You learned that it, it was probably too much work, but you did learn <laughs> that you could do it. Yeah. It's a lot of work, this podcasting thing, right? Uh, yeah, you're not joking. <laughs> People, it's so funny. I was just in my in an Uber, uh, getting an Uber downtown to a Pacers game uh, this week, and you know the Uber drivers making small talk, and they, people, and I don't know about you, but people are always like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "Oh, I host a podcast, and I also stay home with my kids part time." And everybody thinks that the podcast is like my hobby, and you get the random like, "Well, how is that a job?" And so here I find myself like trying to explain to this man who English is his second language, uh, what my podcast is and how I actually, it is my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you explain that talking to people about running is, is actually a job? Well, it's so interesting because if you're talking to a non-runner, they don't understand the show so much. So for instance, I just had Meb Kaflesky on my podcast. Like he just, his episode was Friday. And if I tell a random person who is not in, involved in the writing community, oh, do you know who Meb is? Meb Kaflesky, you know, he won the Boston Marathon. I'm not kidding. A lot of people don't even recognize the name. And so they don't really see it as how like a famous person. Not that that's the ma majority of my show or that's all that my show is, but that's a very recognizable name that kind of makes you... Um, puts you at a reputable level as far as who you're interviewing. And it's just interesting when people in the running community who aren't in the running community don't know who these people are, because for you and I and my listeners and your listeners, like Meb's a really big freaking deal. Yeah. It's like, oh, I interviewed Tom Brady with the Patriots <laughs> or I interviewed Steph Curry with the uh, now I'm showing my lack of sports knowledge. Uh, uh, oh, Steph Curry. Ah, I don't know who he plays for. Uh, I don't know. 
Oh, this is going to be embarrassing, but we're going to leave it in. We're going to leave it in. But like, I'm, most glad, I'm just are, glad I knew who you're talking about. <laughs> but most people are going to understand these athletes because they're at the top of the game. And even if you're not super into basketball or baseball or any of those other team sports, you probably understand some of the best players in the entire league. And yeah, you're right. It's very interesting when people have no idea about someone who's just had, you know, uh, two decades of dominant performances and has won major marathons like the Boston Marathon, which is yeah. such a huge deal in this country. It kind of blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about someone like Meb, too. It's like, it's not like he just won the Boston Marathon. Not that that's ever a just, but like you said, decades of, of a career and um, the longevity of his career is just crazy. So uh, it it is... So funny. And on that note, like I have um, Shalane Flanagan's new cookbook in my kitchen and my brother-in-law was over yesterday, like flipping through it. And he's like, who is this lady? <laughs> like, oh, it's Shalane Flanagan. You know, it's just people that aren't immersed in the culture don't know who these uh, so-called celebrities in the sport are. Yeah, it is odd. Now, now that we're talking about professional runners, um, let me ask you about that. Because, you know, we both host running podcasts. We both have a lot of elite runners come on to our show. And in the past, I've gotten a couple emails from folks who are say, essentially, you know, it's great that you're having these great fast runners on your show, but, you know, they have nothing to offer me. These are runners who, you know, are running at such a high level that they are just, you know, aliens compared to what I'm physically capable of. Have you ever gotten this kind of pushback from your audience um, that, you know, while it's great to speak to pro runners, it's hard to relate to them? Yes. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I, I have a Facebook group with the show and I actually just posted in there. Um, hey guys, I really want to work on bringing some more everyday runners on the show. And hilariously, so many people responded with like the names of people that are women that are like 235 marathoners. And I'm like, mm, that's not really what I was thinking when I said everyday runner. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, if you're listening and you posted that, it's just, it's just funny because, um, they're comparing it to someone who is winning Boston or something like that. But, um, I have, I, in that Facebook group, I have people, when they join the group, they have to ask, they have to suggest a, a guest to come on the show. And I have had quite a handful of people that say like, oh, I miss the everyday runner interviews, or I'd like to hear more from someone that's living a life similar to my life. And so I've kind of gotten in this like schedule of lots of elite runners, boom, boom, boom. And I do keep meaning to sandwich in the more everyday runner. So I haven't actually gotten flack for it, but I've had people, especially my faithful listeners who've been listening from like day one, because I used to have even more everyday runners on um, who have said, I miss those interviews. Those were really good. So um, I'm definitely planning to incorporate more of those in the future. And I think my, I think I had an everyday runner on about four episodes ago, maybe something like that. Her name's Denise McMillan. She's 54. She's only been running for four years. She's a breast cancer survivor. Um, and she started running at the age of 49 and has since ran three marathons. And, and oftentimes those are the episodes that the people that are like, you know, the ride or dies that are always listening. They're like, that was one of my favorite episodes I've ever heard. 
Wow. Yeah, I, I get a lot of that too with, uh, I do a format of podcast where it's essentially a 45 or 60 minute coaching call with an everyday average runner. Mm -hmm. And we talk about what their goals are and how they'd like to get there. And I kind of offer a bunch of suggestions for them on how they can start moving closer to those goals. And it's interesting, those sometimes are uh, way more popular, get much better feedback than, you know, getting uh, such a high caliber runner on. And, you know, I could have Des Linden on the show and, mm -hmm. you know, I might not get as many downloads on an episode like that as just having, you know, a, a 345 marathoner who's trying to crack that three and a half hour mark, which I think does resonate a lot with everyday runners because those are the goals that you and I have. You know, they're not the goals that, you know, uh, Shalane Flanagan might have. <laughs> But, you know, how do we as podcasters um, highlight the careers and uh, the training journeys of these pro runners in a way that does resonate with our audience and, and also teaches them something that they can apply to their own running and hopefully either come away from, from the interview a little bit more inspired to run or have some actionable ideas to implement in their training? How do we, how do we strike that balance? Yeah, well, first of all, I can so see why your interviews with your everyday athletes are received so well because that's tangible. You know, if I'm a 345 marathoner and you're talking to someone that's a 345 marathoner giving them advice, I could take my pen and paper and and write notes down, you know, with that advice. But I, honestly, though, with that question, with who when we're interviewing these elite runners and how do we re then relate that to the people that are listening, I think it depends on the person we're interviewing, right? Because some some people are just more relatable than others. Take Des Linden, for example. She's very relatable, even though she's like super badass, running 130 miles a week, like clearly has a talent and a gift and works really hard. There's something about her personality that I think people can relate to. And so I think it's 50% on us, but 50% on the guest. So it's interesting. I, I don't know. I always try to, when I interview runners, um, I think some running podcasts go really deep into the running side of things, but I always try to get to know the person a little bit deeper um, and ask about their relationships and things like that. Because though I think running is really cool and it's a huge part of my life, like if I'm interviewing you, I want to get to know you as a person beyond your running. And so that probably helps a little bit. Yeah, I can definitely see that just because, you know, we are way more than just a runner, aren't you? Yeah, even if that's a, your job. Yeah, you're a three-dimensional three person. Um, you know, looking back on your podcast is is so great because it's you've been doing it for so long and you're so incredibly consistent with it. I think you're up over 150 episodes uh, and, and many of them are pro runners. So now that we're talking about this, when you look back and all the elite athletes that you've interviewed from all those hundreds of interviews, what do you think are some things that, you know, the average runner can uh, learn from the best runners in the world? Are there some similarities or commonalities that, um, that are present among these pro runners that are going to be applicable to, to us? Well, I think so much of it is the mental side of the sport, which if you're an elite runner, you sure as heck better have that figured out, right? Um, and I think that the message that they send 
on showing up mentally prepared on race day is something that we can all do. That's, you know, we can't all run six minute miles or five minute miles for a marathon, um, but we can show up and put on our best hat mentally and be as physically trained as we can be. So I think when you put the physical part in, you put your work in and then you learn how to mentally prepare on race day, then we're, we're not on the same playing field as far as how fast we're running, but we're on the same playing field as far as what we're doing. When I look at elite runners and I've talked to so many of them now at this point, um, you know, I'm, I'm almost not as interested in the training because it's, it's really cool to see some of the workouts that they do and to hear about the crazy mileage levels that they're able to, to put in week after week. But that's just kind of a function of their physical talents. And, you know, of course they've been working hard and, you know, this is their, their life and, you know, everything revolves around them training. But at the same time, uh, they're simply doing the best that they can. And, uh, we can take so many lessons from that, but what is more common with every single runner, you know, it doesn't matter how fast you are, four hour marathoner, two hour and six minute marathoner, uh, it's what's going on between your head. Because I've been blown away talking to these elite runners and they're telling me how nervous they are in the starting line. They're telling me how, you know, they can't sleep before a race because of anxiety. And I'm like, you're at the top of the game. You know, you're, <laughs> you're Steph Curry out there and yeah. you're getting nervous. And, and I think that's so instructive to all of us because it just shows that they're not superheroes and they experience some of the same mental drama that everyone else does too. Yeah. And, but you know, honestly, like the nervous thing is if I could show up to any start line and feel excited rather than nervous, I mean, obviously your nerves are going to be there, but that's my goal, especially at this point in my life. Like I'm 35, I have four kids, like I've been running for a really long time. I think one thing I have learned is that, um, if I can show up excited instead of nervous, the race is a lot more fun. Now we're not competing to, um, win the Boston Marathon though. <laughs> Our <laughs> paychecks are not on the line for when, you know, what time we cross the finish line in. Um, but yeah, I mean, for sure they get nervous just like we do. Most elite runners have probably worked with, um, a sports psychologist to kind of battle that. And that's just not a luxury. It's kind of like, that would be a weird indulgence if an everyday runner spent the money to consistently work with a sports psychologist you know it's like I've been going to the athletic trainer right now because my hamstring's been bugging me and I'm like this is a luxury that I won't be able to afford for very long but I'm just going to do it for a little bit you know it is interesting that runners will go to the trainer or a physical therapist uh, a lot of recreational runners today are hiring running coaches yep but at the same time they'll they'll get help for physical things but they're not mm. going to get help for mental aspects of it's performing. True. That is such an interesting dichotomy that I have to look into that because, you know, if the average recreational runner is going to be spending, you know, hundreds of dollars to enter yeah. a race and hire a coach and all uh -huh. the gear, I think a sports psychologist is probably a pretty good investment. You could probably do a couple sessions and it would be worth it for sure. You don't see people doing that though. That's a good point. Yeah, there you go. Listeners, let's go see some sports psychologists. Yep. <laughs> now, Lindsay, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about you. Um, okay. Because you have a really interesting story and you've hinted at uh, a couple different things when we were talking about just podcasting and all the, the runners that you've talked to. Um, I just learned that you are running the Boston Marathon this year oh, and you're I training... Am. 
has picked up. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, how do you think about marathon training, which I would I would put in the category of a harder training schedule than, say, 5K training because it's just mm-hmm. more more stuff to do. Yeah. How do you think about marathon training as a mom with four kids? Is that something <laughs> that uh, like do you have to think differently about it? Yes, 100 um, percent. So I was a marathon runner before I had kids. And I think by the time I had my first, I had probably ran uh, seven marathons or something like that. And so, um, yeah, with each additional human that we add to our family, everything gets a little bit more complicated just as far as time and management and logistics. And, you know, you have more kids, more people get sick and there's just, there's a lot going on. Um, and so for me, I think my vision long-term is that I'll be able to run more miles again. Uh, Right now, I'm running very minimal miles, especially in this training for Boston. My baby is, he's my fourth. He's going to be seven months when I run it. So I'm not trying to shoot for any kind of time goal or anything like that. And I just want to be like strong and very physically fit and healthy when I show up to Boston. I mentioned earlier, I've had this like, hamstring annoyance. So I went to, uh, an athletic trainer and she kind of said like, Oh, it's because your glutes aren't firing. Your core is weak. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course my core is weak. I had a baby five months ago. So I'm working on those little details so that I can show up not injured and, uh, just feel good. I mean, heartbreak Hill and all the downhill is going to beat up my legs and the end of the race is going to be tough. But, um, yeah, I view it differently now. I mean, I think that Lindsay four years ago with only two babies or I guess three years ago, my second oldest just now turned four. Um, I would have been a lot more focused on making sure my mileage, my mileage was up and I'm much more focused on just making sure I'm a strong individual right now. Yeah. You've, um, you know, talked about the physical side of things, you know, how you're approaching the training, you're going to do slightly lower, probably not slightly, but lower mileage, uh, with a bigger emphasis on strength. Uh, is that because you're more worried right now about consistency and health and your longevity in the sport rather than performance? Like you're not trying to go out there and run a certain time, are you? No, I, so I, was able to PR the marathon in 2017 after my a year after I had my third baby and I ran a 311 which that was a PR I had broke my PR that had been 3 years old cuz I got injured in between baby 1 and 2 and wasn't able to run a marathon so my PR had been from 2013 so it was a no it was a 4 year PR so when I built up my mileage uh in 2017 after my third baby I was like Really riding that fine line of I want to build my mileage up just enough so that I'm I know I'm strong enough to PR and run fast, but I don't want to go over a certain you know like I feel like the older I get and the more I run I can I can feel when my body's breaking down and I can feel when I need to not go for a run like if I if I put all my workouts in for the week and I'm supposed to just do like an easy six miles. At this point in my life, I pretty much know like it would probably be better if you just foam rolled and didn't go for a run today. And so I was walking that fine line there. And then I got pregnant again with our fourth. So now I'm in this healthy place where it's like, okay, I can 
become strong enough to run this marathon. I'll get my long run built up and run a couple days during the week and along with some cross training. And then after this race, I can slowly build back up again. So my vision is long term. Like what what can I do now so that in a year and a half I can probably run a PR. But there's no point to try to rush that because look, uh time is of of an essence, of course, because I'm 35, but I'd rather be 38 and not have had to take three months or six months off here in between um, and have to build back from there and be trying to run a PR at 38 rather than 36. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I'm like fist pumping over here. (laughs) You have such a healthy outlook on running it, it like as a coach I'm just I'm like shaking my head I'm I'm so happy about this because <laughs> you're taking such a long-term perspective to your running yeah. you know you could probably cram in the miles short change the strength training that you're doing and get in quote better shape for the marathon sure for but sure it might actually not be in your best interests long term because i mean look we're within the 100 day mark uh for boston right now and uh you know if you're not kind of rocking and rolling already with some really solid you know double digit long runs and and some decent mileage you know you, you kind of have to make some hard decisions about what you're really going to be capable of on race day and you're not rushing that process you're looking out years and years rather than months and, and i think that's going to help you not only have a better time at the boston marathon this spring but ultimately become a faster marathoner you know you're not trying to do this on a, a short-term time horizon you're really like thinking you know what do i want to do over the course of the next couple of years and i'll set up my training to uh, accomplish those goals. So I think that's such, such an awesome uh, perspective that you have. And, you know, I think more than anything, I mean, this represents just a, I think a mindset shift mm-hmm. more than just, you know, oh, I'm not going to run as much. I'll do more strength training. You really understand mm-hmm. where you're at in life and what limitations you have. And, you know, your training is going to reflect that. And I think that's uh, such a mature productive perspective. So, you know, the running coach in me is, is is giving you a round of applause. (laughs) It's hard because people want to see short-term results. It's results are exciting. And so that's hard because you to be patient. And it's also, I think people struggle with saying, Oh, I'm racing a 5k today or, Oh, I'm racing a half marathon a day. And then you've got to put that asterisk, like, but I'm not in the best shape I've ever been in, you know, like, but I can run faster. I'm just not in shape now. And it's like, you know what? Like, I don't even have to put that asterisk because eventually I'll be there again. But if I try to be there right now, I'm just rushing everything. And then I'm also ultimately probably not enjoying what I'm doing because in the back of my head, I'm probably scared that I'm going to injure myself anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've been following you on Instagram too, and you've talked a couple times about really prioritizing feeling strong rather mm-hmm. than worrying about your exact finish time. Can can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what that means to you? Yeah, well, you know, as a marathon runner, running is my thing, but the strongest I ever felt in my entire life was in 2015, I or for I'm just like, my years are all off. We're getting old. No, 2013, I did a half Ironman. Have you ever done a, do you ever do tries? I've done some sprint triathlons and one duathlon, but never anything longer than a sprint. Well, for some reason that year, I was like, 
a burnout from marathon running. I just ran a marathon PR in the spring and I was like, I'm sick of running. I'm going to do a triathlon. Well, my husband had done an, a full Ironman the year before. And so I was like, well, I, I can do a half marathon I've, or a half Ironman. I've seen, I saw his training for the full Ironman. I, I can, I can handle the half. So I just signed up for a half Ironman, even though I'd never done a triathlon before in my life, never swam or anything. But in training for that half Ironman, I was like, I am the strongest I've ever been as a human. <laughs> like just the swimming, like I could, the only time in my life I've ever seen even a glimpse of definition in my abs is when I was training for that half Ironman. And I really feel like I was probably the furthest away from injury I've ever been because I was running maybe four days a week, but I was doing so much biking and swimming that my body as a whole was just like so strong. I was using muscles I had never used before. And so, um, I look back at that time now and I'm just really trying to put it into perspective. Like I, we get into this rut where we're like more running is better, more running is better. And for some people, maybe that's true, but for me, it's not. And I'm going to be a stronger person if I run a little bit less and I do, and I cross train a little bit more. Now you can't like say, I'm going to run less and then not do the cross training. <laughs> um, but if you can do the cross training, man, an hour spin class can supplement a six mile run. No problem. <laughs> right now. It, it seems like you're, you're taking, um, this perspective on training right now that, you're almost not thinking of yourself as, as a pure runner and you're thinking of yourself more as an athlete. And this is something that I've spent yeah. the last year talking about. You know, I named 2018 the year of strength on strength running. Just talking about strength training and how I don't even consider it cross training. It's just part of the training that you have to do as a runner if you want to be uh, healthy and really trying to optimize your performance. But for someone like you, I mean, this is such an awesome way of, of making yourself feel stronger, of helping injury-proof your upcoming Boston Marathon when you know you're not going to be able to put in the kind of mileage that you were in the past. Uh, so I think that's um, a, a good way for you to um, improve your longevity in the sport of running, too. Because, you know, the, the stronger you get, the more athletic you become and the better at, at other disciplines like swimming and cycling. Uh, that's just going to make you more durable in the future. And, you know, we're, we're both 35 and we have to start thinking about these things right now. You know, I think probably 10 years ago, we would just be pounding the <laughs> mileage and, totally. and just more and more and more. But we have to make some concessions now. I was reading back uh, just in some of my old blog posts. Um, it was like in between some surgeries I'd had. And I was like bounced right back up to 60 miles a week like it was nothing. And I'm like, whoa, 60 miles a week right now to me sounds crazy. And I think the highest mileage week I've ever run is probably 65 anyway. But just looking back and reading those mileage, those miles that I was running, it's like, to me, looking back now, I'm like, man, I not even, I would say for Boston this year, I'll peak out at 35 miles. And I'm like, I know that sounds really low, but that's what it's going to be. Yeah. And you know yourself, you know, what you can do and what you're capable of. And so for this particular race, I think you're, you're kind of taking a, a really smart approach to it. Um, let's transition a little bit. I want to talk about something that you uh, have started doing recently. You set a big goal. You um, want to raise $10,000 to support the Donna Foundation. And uh, I was 
really moved by uh, a few of your Instagram posts, learning more about this and just preparing for this interview, learning more about your history. So I'd love to uh, learn from you. You know, why set this goal? Why is this so important to you? So, yeah. So in 2013, I found out I was positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation, which puts me at a 86% risk of getting breast cancer in my lifetime, which that was just like a huge moment in my life and a turning point in my whole big issue with facing fear. I've always been a fearful person. And, um, and in that moment, I made the decision to have a prophylactic double mastectomy. And so, so this whole breast cancer awareness thing is, is, really personal to me. I mean, I think everybody listening in some way, shape or form has probably been affected by breast cancer. Like I don't, I don't know anybody who doesn't know someone or isn't related to someone who has either passed away or endured it or had something. Um, but so long story short, when I, when I had that surgery, um, I was given, I runners, women's running magazine was doing a contest and I, and I won this contest to talk about finding my strong and I, my find my strong moment was when I found out I had this mutation, um, just facing it. And I was training for that half Ironman at the time. And so my point with that, though, is that it landed me on the cover of Women's Running Magazine. And I, and I always remember being like, what, what is going to happen with this? Like, what is the purpose of me being on the cover of this magazine? Like, I don't know. It's kind of cool to be on the cover of a magazine. But what's the greater purpose beyond sharing my story and encouraging women to be proactive with their health? And ultimately, honestly, like I think the purpose turned into me starting my podcast and then me having this voice and this platform to share other people's stories, but also share my own personal story. And I knew that I would always want to do something in the realm of raising money and supporting an organization that supports research for breast cancer. And not only that, care for those living with the disease, because for me, I'm so lucky, you know, I mean, obviously my story is still a, in progress, but the fact that there was research done to know that there's this mutation in the BRCA2 gene that some people have that puts them at this very high risk of getting breast cancer. Like I knew that at age 30 and I was able to get screened, get a mammogram, have an MRI and choose to have a prophylactic double mastectomy. I mean, at 30, if you're, if you're not feeling any weirdness in your breast, you're not going to go get those. You're not going to get a mammogram. You're not going to get an MRI. Um, so I'm just so thankful that I had the opportunity to make those decisions and to be proactive. And so, you know, you don't want to be that person that's like always fundraising and asking people for money 24 seven. But I, I felt like when it was time to raise money for an organization, I wanted it to be something that was really close to my heart and use my voice and the platform that I have. I get to speak in front of lots of people every single week on my podcast. Um, and I thought I want to I want to support this organization that is doing work that has personally affected my life and everybody else listening's life in some way, shape or form. So um, the cool thing is, is I went to the Donna Marathon last year. And that marathon supports the Donna Foundation. And it was just this random, you know, they reached out to me about coming because of my podcast. They didn't even know about my BRCA2 gene mutation. So I just feel like it was very full circle. And as I sat at the Mayo Clinic dinner at the foundation, um, the foundation had this dinner for the guests that were there. And I learned about 
the groundbreaking research they were doing, I was like, why haven't I fundraised for them? Like there were tons of fundraisers in that room. And I'm like, why am I not one of those people next year when I come back for this race? I'm going to have raised a substantial amount of money. So I didn't know what number to pick, but I just said 10,000 sounds like a hefty donation. Let's go for 10,000. So here I am. I think I'm at like 4,700. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I try to make that as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, no need for speed, um, which is a weird thing to say on a running podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> lots of puns too. Uh, no, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I mean, this is such a such an amazing uh, goal that you've set. Tell us more about the Donna Foundation. Are they are they strictly um, research supporting research efforts to um, you know figure out treatments and cures? Um, no, they also support people who are living with the disease. So the cool thing is uh, the founder Donna, she is a three-time breast cancer survivor herself, and her whole thing was like she had the means, the support financially, and family support and friend support to go through and endure this disease. Um, I don't want to say relatively smoothly and easily, but she had the support anybody would need and not everybody has that. So her big thing was like, if this was so hard for me and I had all of the support that anybody could ever ask for, what about people that don't have that support? So they actually also give money to women or men who might need financial help or things like that. So they, they're caring for and loving on people living with the disease as well. But when we went to the Mayo Clinic dinner, we got to hear about research that was being done for new oncology drugs that are um, people are doing at trials, like using in their lives right now. Um, and I remember I said to Donna, I said, the, I forget what the drug or the the therapy was that they were highlighting in the video, but I said, if you still had breast cancer today, would you would you use that trial? And she was like, heck yes, I would. Like that would if that was my option, hands down, I would do that. So they're literally funding research that is saving people's lives and giving people a second chance. And um, when you hear a voice like a person that's actually going through it and that is actually using these drugs that these dollars are going towards, it really makes you motivated to to be I mean none of this could happen if people weren't giving money to to the to the research to the scientists and the doctors that are that are um, out there making it happen so so yeah it's exciting they fund research and they also help people that are living with the disease and, and I think that's really important too because you know right now in my family um, you know my grandfather recently passed away from cancer and my uncle is currently losing a battle to cancer and uh, my aunt is a breast cancer survivor. And so in my family, it's it's kind of this ever-present disease. Yep. And uh, I can really see, too, how, you know, if you take my uncle, for example, he's he's getting new treatments like every six months because the, the, the science and the technology behind it is advancing pretty rapidly. Uh, and, and in part, that's because, you know, there's a lot of money being thrown at the problem of cancer. Um, so I, I think this is really great. If, if folks want to support this cause and donate to the Donna Foundation and learn more about uh, your efforts here, where can they go to learn more? And I was trying to think, what is the simplest way to direct people? Because, you know, you say, go to my website, lindsayhine.com, but it's like buried in. I would say probably go to my Instagram, lindsayhine626, because I am leaving the link up to donate in my profile 
my my CrowdRise page. So if you go to my Instagram, lindsayhines626, and in my profile, I have the CrowdRise page where you can go donate. So we're the cool thing is uh, we're at I think uh, forty. What did I say? Forty five hundred, something like that. And um, that's with like a hundred and twenty five donors. So a little bit goes a long way. I mean, that's a lot of people for forty five hundred dollars, but like. That's because people aren't thinking, I only have $10 to give. I shouldn't give at all. It's like, no, I have so many $10 donations that have added up really quickly. Yeah. And then, you know what? I've, I think the older I get, the more I realize that the, act, the small actions of an individual really do add up to something much more uh, than the sum of the parts. So uh, to our listeners, please head on over to Lindsay's Instagram page. You can learn more about the Donna Foundation and her goal to raise $10,000 to support breast cancer research and support for those who are currently living with the disease. Uh, now, Lindsay, I also want to plug, I'll have another, your oh, podcast, thanks. which uh, 158 episodes now. I think it's 162. Once I was well, not there. that I'm counting. I not mean, that you're counting. <laughs> you know, you have to record your intros every week too, though. You kind of have the number sta- stamped in your brain of every course. week. This is number 83. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope our listeners do check out your podcast because Thank you talk you. to some really amazing people and uh, you're a very gifted interviewer being able to Thank bring you. out some interesting stories and the lives behind the runners. So thank you for all that you do. And thanks so much for taking some time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me so much. All right. Take care, Lindsay. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. It's Jason back one more time before you leave. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Lindsay Hine. Please check out her podcast. If you like this show, you're going to like hers as well. And I also hope that you check out today's sponsor, Hemp Daddy's Therapeutics. Now, I know that there's a big stigma with CBD oil, and you probably have some questions. How can this benefit me? Is this the same as marijuana? Am I going to get high? Is it safe? Well, I thought it would be helpful to share with you a brief conversation I had with the founder of the company, Caleb Simpson. He's a trail and ultra runner located here in Colorado, and after reading a very positive review on trailandultrarunning.com, I knew this was a product worth experimenting with. Here's my Q&A with Caleb. Let me ask you what I think everyone is thinking. How is this different from pot? What is CBD, and is this oil going to get me high? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. It's probably one of the most commonly asked questions I get. And the answer to that is pretty simple. It's like CBD will not get you high. Um, So basically what you have is you have the marijuana plant and you have the hemp plant. And most of the CBD you see on the market right now is produced from the industrial hemp plant. So it has 0.3% less um, 0.3% of THC or less, so there's like zero chance of this stuff getting you high. Um, you just get all the medicinal and therapeutic benefits from the plant, but without those psychoactive effects. So it would be like drinking a kombucha, which is actually 0.5% alcohol. It's just not enough to do anything. Exactly, and, that, and that's an actual example I really like to give is the whole kombucha beer beer example. So they're both alcoholic beverages. But kombucha is a healthy beverage, and it's going to have all these health benefits with a tiny bit of alcohol, but you know, not enough to get you drunk. And the same is similar with CBD. It's got all the health benefits, but no psychoactive effects. For runners, I think the most valuable aspect of a product like this is how it can reduce anxiety, potentially promote a feeling of well-being, and help you sleep more soundly. You know, that's the stuff that recovery is made from. How does CBD help an athlete do this? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So CBD interacts with our body's endocannabinoid system and also like our serotonin. And so it's kind of similar to the runner's high. And that's what gives us kind of like the relaxed feeling. It's how it helps us with like stress and anxiety. Um, It's also anti-inflammatory. So it's going to help help you recover faster in that regard. And it also just kind of helps calm the mind, which, you know, if you struggle with sleep, if you struggle with turning your mind off at night, um, this will help you kind of turn off your mind and sleep and help you go to sleep faster for one. And also, if you wake up several times during the night, it will also help you sleep more soundly. And as runners know, like sleep is super critical to recovery. And so that's how CBD is able to help athletes. You know, that's my problem. I have a problem not with going to sleep and falling asleep, but with getting up at one, two, three in the morning and then not being able to fall back asleep. And I personally started using this uh, about a week ago. And, you know, I've found that, yeah, I'm sleeping more soundly at night and and I, I haven't woken up at all where usually I'm good for waking up maybe once or twice a week. So for me, uh, I'm starting to experience those benefits, uh, and it's something that uh, I love because, you know, it's easy to take. You know, I, I don't have to, like, eat anything. It's just so simple. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but it, it is super simple, and there, there are loads of benefits from it. Besides the oil, does CBD come in any other types of products? Like you said, we offer the oil, which is kind of the most commonly used product. We also offer capsules and a transdermal cream. Um, what I like about the capsules is they're super easy um, to take. They're convenient. It's very precise dosing. I really like them for traveling or if I'm going on like a long run in the mountains. They're great to carry with me for that. And we also offer a pain cream, which is becoming a very popular product of ours. Um, it's a transdermal cream, so it has a little pump. You just put a little bit on your hands and rub it into your troubled spots, and you can get relief from you know, pain, whether it's in your knees or your elbows or your hands. And it also really helps cut down on inflammation and reduce soreness um, from our long runs. Now I'm curious what happens to you if you just have way too much. So there's 20 milligrams of CBD per serving. You sent me a nice little sample bottle with 30 servings in it. What happens if I just drink this entire bottle? You know, I have not put that to the test and don't plan to. Um, but, you know, just the, the research I've done, it's like you can't overdose on CBD. It's not possible. Um, but at the same time, I have no idea how much research has been done about, you know, drinking an entire bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I probably just don't want like four ounces of oil sloshing around in my oh, stomach yeah, anyway. Oh, totally. yeah, totally. <laughs> All right, everyone. I hope you found this helpful. Check out their entire line of CBD products at hempdaddies.com. And that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be in touch very soon.